Welcome to AACS Today, the official podcast of the American Association of Christian Schools. Thank you for joining us on this episode of AACS Today. This is the official podcast of the American Association of Christian Schools, and I want to thank you for listening to this, our first two-part podcast. And we want to begin to think about planning for next school year. I know many of our schools are beginning to get into a rhythm uh, of finishing up with distance learning this school year. And perhaps you've been in a little bit of a survival mode, and I think we've all, we've all been there, uh, just trying to make it through and make sure we are uh, providing the services that our families need now. But there's some important questions that are coming up about how do we plan, how do we prepare for next school year. And so on the podcast, joining me today is Dr. Jeff Walton, the Executive Director of the American Association of Christian Schools, and Ed Francis, who is the Education Director of the American Association of Christian Schools. And we're here today to discuss how do we plan for the fall. So Dr. Walton, uh, Ed, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Dr. Walton, uh, go ahead and get us started I know that there's a lot of information out there, and that's always the case, and we kind of want to try to narrow our focus and to think about some specific things. So so what what, um, what do things do we want to be thinking about right now? Well, Matt, thanks for the opportunity today. Um, there is a lot of information to sift through right now related to planning for next year. Uh, a big part of what the AACS staff has been doing for the last several weeks is a find and filter process. Uh, we recognize that school leaders are incredibly busy uh, trying to get things online, trying now to get into a rhythm for how their classes operate, trying to make sure that they continue to offer a quality education to children. And they have difficulty uh, sorting through, finding, and then filtering the information that is available. Just as an illustration, I currently have over 200 flagged and unopened emails in my inbox. And that's because people are regularly sending me information, information about school next year, information about COVID-19, information about the CARES Act. Uh, I appreciate all that information that's sent, uh, but it is too much for me to process and filter through. And I'm sure school leaders are feeling that many times over with all the other pressures they have. And so uh, a good part of what we've been doing as AACS staff is sorting through. Our legislative staff has been very diligent about working on the CARES Act, the Paycheck Protection Program Act, and then filtering information and feeding that out to our schools, partly through these podcasts. You've been a tremendous help to our school leaders in giving us this vehicle for filtering information. I, I wanted to start with uh, an, an illustration of something that I think gives kind of a, a snapshot of where we are. We have tried in these podcasts to include uh, a number of state leaders and school leaders and teachers from different parts of the country. One of the strengths of the American Association of Christian Schools is that we are a network of 38 state associations. And that means that out there, there are people with great experience, a lot of wisdom about school issues. We've tried to bring a number of those people into these podcasts. 
Uh, Matt, you know that you and I in the last week have talked to some state leaders about participating in this podcast, and uh, you are the only state leader that happens to be part of the podcast here, and that's because of the, the interesting responses that we've gotten, and, and two of those, I think, illustrate where schools are. One of the responses that we've gotten is, uh, Jeff, I would like to be part of the podcast, but I am so busy right now working with my, my state governor and the agencies in our state that are establishing the guidelines for reopening schools and for finishing this school year. Uh, I'm working with the state governor on a task force because the state governor has some discretionary money under the CARES Act, and we would like to see some of those funds uh, channeled to scholarship granting organizations to help fund scholarships. So one of the answers that we've gotten, I think, is reflective of where we are, and that is we are so busy right now trying to keep up with all the things happening uh, and serve our schools well, that it's hard to take the time out to think about what's going to happen next year and to do a podcast about what's going to happen next year. One of the other interesting responses that we got was, uh, Jeff, I would like to participate, but things are so uncertain right now. I don't really know how to advise schools about planning for next year because there's so much uncertainty about whether and how we finish up this school year um, and then what things are going to look like as we start next school year. So while those responses give us, a, I think, a really good picture of where our schools are right now, it is not too early to start thinking about next year. We are almost at the end of April. Uh, school leaders necessarily are thinking about what happens next year. And so what we're going to try to do with this podcast is help give them a structure for thinking about that. Uh, what do we need to do? What do we need to think about uh, as we prepare for school in the fall? Yeah, and so what we have is we have two uh, what we're calling open letters. In fact, one of them is called an open letter to independent schools. Uh, and that letter is from uh, Kennesaw State University. So that's the first letter that we're kind of using as a basis for the podcast. It was, it was written by uh, two professors, Benjamin Scafidi, uh, a professor of economics, and Eric Wern, an associate professor of education studies there at Kennesaw State. And then the second letter that we're going to use is from Dr. Mark Beadle. Uh, Dr. Beadle has 35 years of experience in Christian education. He's also an adjunct professor for three Christian universities, and he's head of school emeritus for Seven Star, which is an online academy. Both of the letters propose some questions that school leaders should consider right now. And what we're going to do with these letters is we're going to include them in the show notes as well as on our website for you because we want you to have access to them. We obviously can't dive into everything in the letters, but we want to pull some things out that we think are really, really important. So we want to start with question number one. And if you want to grab these uh, papers or just listen and grab, grab the, the letters later off the show notes, that's fine. But we want to start with question one from Dr. Beadle's letter. And uh, here is uh, in part one, 12 questions to help planning a successful reopening. Dr. Beadle says, could you pull together a task force to plan for the reopening? This would include representatives of all stakeholders or all of those impacted by the reopening. So Dr. Walton, what would your response be to that question? 
Uh, my response would be, you know, that's Dr. Beadle's first question. That would be my, my number one recommendation is that right now, as a school leader, you establish a task force. You start meetings with your leadership team. Uh, it's not too early to start working on this. In fact, working on this now is essential if you're going to successfully reopen next year. Uh, we are hopeful that our schools will not just survive, but thrive. And if that's going to happen, it will not happen without some planning that happens now. And I, I think that planning needs to happen in some new ways. I like the, the term task force. Um, we have the, the president's task force that is considering how we should address the, the COVID-19 crisis as a nation. I, calling your group a task force, I think, gives some focus to what they will be doing. This is our task force for the reopening of our school next year. And involving in that group then school leadership, you may already have a group together that regularly meets that will serve this purpose. It might be your leadership team, it might be your school improvement team, you might create an ad hoc group. But I, I really think it's important that you not just sit alone in your office as a school leader and think about this, but that you put together a group of people, whether that's three or six or eight, a task force that is about reopening school next year and can, as a group, give some thought to the questions that we're going to pose in this podcast uh, about what school will look like in the fall. Yeah, and task force, it might be a little bit of a buzzword right now, Dr. Walton, but I, I couldn't agree more with you that I think we want to use some of that common language that people are used to hearing because I think it communicates uh, this is something important. And the fact that we have the president's task force, I know when I'm involved with some things locally in our local government here, and we have a task force locally, that's language that our parents are used to hearing. And so I think it communicates that we have some very specific plans together and in place to get school reopened. So that's a great phrase. And I think that's a great first suggestion from Dr. Beadle. But I want to go to Ed Francis. Ed, by the way, welcome to the podcast. This is your first time joining us. So thanks for hopping on with us. But I want to go to the Kennesaw State paper, Ed, and get your response to two questions. Let's start with, it's just question number one. How can we, and here's a key word, credibly convince our school community that we will provide more safety against the coronavirus relative really to other schools, specifically public schools. So I'd want to go to you uh, for an answer to that question. First, Matt, thank you for letting me be part of the podcast here today. And as a former school administrator, when it came to school safety and health and environmental things, we did a lot and would do a lot to address some of those things, to make sure our schools and our students, our school and our student, was a safe environment for our students uh, when they came to school. Uh, this is where the task force is needed. And honestly, they begin their work here with this question. Uh, they're going to have to work through the elements of this question. And there are essentially uh, three elements or essentially three plans that need to be thought through. And the Kennesaw State letter will bring up on the third plan, a crisis management plan, which will be drawn out more. Uh, but two other plans that really are part of a school healthy, a healthy school environment or a safety Play, a place where it's safe for the students to be. Um, we need to give special consideration to some ideas that perhaps are, are very different from things that we've considered before. 
Uh, one is a social distancing plan. And, and as, schools, as schools put together their social distancing plan, they'll need to know what is required by their local officials. This will be different between schools. Uh, but what is the same is that our schools are all following a social distancing plan that meets the requirements of their local officials. Um, so they don't go to the, the school in another state and say, well, they got a good social distancing plan and implement it in their school here. They need to know what the law or the requirements are by their local officials regarding social distancing. Uh, another plan that is going to need to be put in place is a disinfectant plan. Uh, what new cleaning procedures are being taken to maintain a virus-free campus? And those things are going to be things that we're going to have to consider on a larger scale as we reopen this next year, uh, a social distancing plan um, and a school disinfectant plan. Yeah, and then let's look at uh, question number two on the Kennesaw State paper, Ed, if you'd give us some feedback on that. And here's the question. What will our crisis management plan be when one of our teachers, staff, or students test positive for the coronavirus? And, you know, it's possible some of our schools are already wrestling with this, but uh, there is some talk that maybe a second wave of coronavirus or, you know, potentially a third wave coming. So we need to have a plan for that. Help us think through that, Ed. Matt, and that, that is, that's the third plan. And that's an important plan. And we hope that that doesn't happen, that uh, we don't have a, uh, a student uh, or a staff member or teacher test positive for the virus. Uh, but if we do, we need to have already thought through um, how do we manage this? Uh, what are the protocols for handling this so that we have a response to it? Um, and uh, part of that response is going to be uh, to alert the relevant, uh, the health officials that are the ones who, we need to know who they are. We need to have their phone number written down somewhere so that we can notify them um, regarding a positive uh, test for the virus. A second, we need to obey the law. We need to follow the law with what we're being told to do, our guidance on managing this in the situation in our school. And then third, we need to be transparent. Uh, let our families know, our staff know um, about the issue and then how it's being handled. As you message your school safety plan, it needs to be a consistent message. It needs to be a message that's easily understood. It's capable of being done. And it also shores up the confidence your families have in keeping their child safe while at school. So that's going to involve a social distancing plan. It's going to involve a school disinfectant plan. And it's also going to involve a crisis management plan. Yeah, and Dr. Walton, of course, the, C the CDC is going to have guidance for events and activities for cleaning and, and disinfecting. But there's some important points to discuss here about liability issues for private schools if they do not follow public health guidance. So help us think through that. Yeah, Matt. So um, I wanted to follow up uh, and, and comment. A school leader might think about that disinfecting plan and say, where do I go for that kind of guidance? And as you mentioned, CDC is, is a great resource for that. Right on their website, there are plans for schools, what you need to do to disinfect. I've seen a number of similar things uh, on the websites for state departments of education 
and state health departments and other organizations. So you don't have to invent that from scratch. There are great resources out there for that. Uh, there are also, when you talk about the, the crisis plan uh, that Ed talked about a minute ago, I think key words in that are transparency and communication. Uh, be very transparent with your parents and you cannot communicate too much, I think, in, in circumstances like that where there is some kind of a confirmed case that all ought to be part of your crisis planning. Uh, but thanks for the opportunity also to comment about uh, liability issues. One of the things that has um, come to our office in the form of a question and email sent to us is, do we have to follow the local guidance about school closures? Uh, we think our state governor has overstepped his authority with, uh, with a school closure announcement, or we think that our mayor is overstepping his authority. In other places, they're able to have schools open, but we're not in our city. Do we need to follow that guidance? Um, we don't want to wave this flag around too much, but I've had several communications over the past weeks with our legislative director, Jameson Coppola, uh, with our attorney, Steve Cummings, and uh, have also reviewed the feedback from several other legal counselors. And the consensus is pretty solid that you do need to follow the guidance of your state and your local authorities primarily to protect the health and safety of your kids. These are well-meaning people who have the, uh, the, the best health interests of your students at heart. But beyond that, you have liability risk as a private school. There's a, a concept in law called governmental immunity, which says that an, an agent of the government acting in his role as an agent of the government has some degree of immunity from a lawsuit. A public school official has some level of governmental immunity. A private school official does not. And you put yourself in a position of great risk if you go counter to the advice uh, of the guidance of your state governor or local health officials and open a school counter to their guidance. If it would happen then that an outbreak occurred at your school, that there was serious illness or perhaps even a, a death related to that, uh, you would be at, at a significant risk for liability. And so the legal minds out there say it is really significant that as a private school, you do follow the guidance about school closings and social distancing provided by health officials. Yeah, and Dr. Walton, it's it's easy maybe for an individual school leader or a pastor or a teacher to kind of get uh, swept into the Let's Open America movement, but we have to distinguish between our personal feelings and what, what we think ought to be done and institutionally uh, what's the wise thing to do. And so I think that's very wise counsel for our school leaders. I think we ought to uh, you know, petition our government for things that we feel passionately about one way or the other. It doesn't necessarily have to be the let's open America movement, but we need to, we need to exercise wisdom when we're, when we're talking about an institution because there is great liability there. Let's move into now really, 
I think, two very key questions, one from the Kennesaw paper and one from Dr. Beadle's paper. It's number six on the Kennesaw paper. And the question is this, how can we best educate our students next year when they will be toggling between school, home, school, and home? That's number six on the Kennesaw paper. Number two from Dr. Beadle's paper is if the government or parents demand social distancing, how would you cut class sizes? Think students coming to school at different times or some online classes as an option? How would you handle arrival, assemblies, meals, recess, dismissal, and after-school care? So we want to we get into this question a little bit because it's very likely, as Kennesaw State Papers said, uh, that we'll be toggling between the, the two next year with some at school, some at home. There's been some discussion And perhaps some of our school leaders have considered maybe more of a university model schedule where students are coming in on a Monday, Wednesday, or Tuesday, Thursday uh, schedule. Um, Maybe there's some ways to integrate uh, some university model with some online learning. But Dr. Walton, I think there is uh, probably need for some clarification around university model because it's it's a term that that gets thrown around and we were discussing this uh, before we began recording So help us just kind of clarify what that is for our school leaders and how that might or might not fit with online instruction. All right. So thanks, Matt. Yeah, there is a lot of misunderstanding about what university model means. And I think the easiest way to understand that is just to think back to when you, as a teacher, went to university. Uh, you, You went from a high school program where you had in most cases, every class, every day. And then you found yourself at college and you had Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes or Tuesday, Thursday classes. Sometimes you had a five credit class that met every day, but for the most part, you had classes that, a three credit class that met Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And between classes, you had assignments that reviewed Monday's material and prepared you for Wednesday's class. Uh, That's what university model school is. And in today's context, when they talk about using university model schedules to meet social distancing requirements, here's almost always what they're talking about. They're talking about a school that has 25 first graders in a class. They're being told that they must social do, do social distancing. So they can come back to school, but they still have to do social distancing. And they say, well, we can't physically do that and put 25 kids in a class. But what we could do is put our kids on a Monday, Wednesday, or a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. So one cohort, half of those first graders, they come to school on Monday and Wednesday. On Tuesday and Thursday and Friday, they are doing work assigned by their teacher on Monday, Wednesday. Then Tuesday, Thursday, the the class flips. The teacher teaches the same material now on Tuesday or on Thursday to a different group of kids. And in between those, they are doing the work that has been assigned. So it's easiest to understand that when you think in terms of your university experience. It's a university model schedule. It can coordinate with online learning, but that's not primarily what it's about. It's primarily about uh, allowing social distancing to happen when you are allowed to have students at school 
and it's accomplished by having a day of instruction followed by a day away from class where you do the work you're supposed to do. Yeah, and so that might be a setup that our schools might want to consider, but something probably more realistic for our schools would be uh, continuing or refining the online education programs and the distance learning programs that they've developed for the end of this school year and toggling back and forth between being on campus and then doing some of those distance learning or online options. And there's some really great resources out there about that. So Dr. Walton, share some of those recommendations and resources with our listeners. Yeah, Matt, I think that for most of our schools, uh, the the number one option going into next year is going to be toggling between on-campus and online. So on-campus, unless they're provided with some kind of a stay-at-home order uh, by the officials in their area, and then they're going to move to online. If, you, if you've got a stay-at-home order, you can't go to university model schedule. You've got to go to online. So I think that primarily what our schools are going to do is refine what they were doing this year. This year, you know, they had just a few days to make that transition and pivot from an on-campus to online. Uh, now they've got more time to prepare for next year, and they need to put into place really good plans uh, for how they will move from on-campus to online when it's necessary next year. That may mean uh, purchasing some new equipment. Uh, that may mean uh, new staff development and training for teachers so that they can do things better. Generally, our parents have been uh, pretty pleased with the transition that our schools have made. I've, I've gotten scores of reports from school leaders, including uh, newspaper articles that talk about how successfully and how quickly the private school or the Christian school pivoted from on-campus to online. Uh, but in a lot of ways, we've been given grace in this, as, as we, I hope, are giving grace to parents and students as they're learning to live in this new environment. But we've been given grace also. You know, it, it is seen as a stopgap measure. Hey, you put some really good things in place really quickly. But parents will not be satisfied with that next year we've got to have even better mechanisms in place for next year. Uh, and uh, part of what your, um, your team ought to be doing and thinking about next year then is thinking about how we do this really well for next year. And I'm going to suggest one resource for you to help you structure your thoughts around that. Uh, that resource uh, will be, or we'll provide a link to that resource in the show notes and on our website. Uh, but there's a group called Evergreen Education, and Evergreen Education has a number of resources for digital learning. Uh, the resource I'm going to suggest to you is called Planning for Quality, a Guide for Starting and Growing a Digital Learning Program. Uh, so you've learned a lot real fast this year about how we moved to online, but we need a systematic way of thinking about how we're going to do that uh, next year. So I suggest this as a, as a document for you, a guide for starting and growing a digital learning program. It's from Evergreen Education. And then in addition to that, uh, look back at some of the webinars that we recorded for you six weeks ago as this was just getting started. 
particularly the webinars that um, Dr. David Warren recorded about Google Classroom and G Suite for Education. Uh, and so a lot of schools have kind of cobbled together something for this year. Next year, you need to start the year with a very systematic and well thought out approach to how you will make that transition back and forth between on campus and online as you will likely have to uh, at least a couple of times in the next academic year if the health experts are correct. Yeah, no doubt. And just like just like we experienced this year, it could be it could happen quickly. I mean, if someone in your school uh, family, one of your students or one of their family members uh, contracts the coronavirus, uh, it could it could happen literally within the period of a day or two. So the more prepared we are to toggle between the two, the better it's going to be. Some other uh, suggestions uh, kind of related to that would be to use groups of families that team up together who can interact with each other. So if you're in quarantine is really probably not the, the exact proper term for that, but we, we kind of called it and have heard it called quarantines where groups of families can help one another with uh, childcare, let's say, while some of the families have to go to work. So again, if your school is not able, able to meet physically on the campus, maybe there's three or four families that meet together each in your school that help one another care for children, watch over schoolwork, and do those kinds of things while you're not able to physically meet on the property. So that that's a, a suggestion for you to think about. But something else that's kind of come up as well is from accredited schools. So Dr. Walton, help help our accredited schools or those pursuing accreditation think through this, uh, I don't want to call it a new reality, but at least in the short term, uh, we're wrestling with not having school on the physical property. How does that affect accreditation? So I've been in uh, several virtual meetings, conference calls with uh, leaders of other accrediting agencies who have talked about this question because it's common uh, with accredited schools. So we've had to move to an online format suddenly this year. How does that affect our school? Uh, when it's a short-term stopgap measure, there's a lot of grace that's going to be given. Uh, when you look at the possibility of this continuing into next school year, I would say um, you need to, if you're an accredited school, you think about accreditation. But even if you're not an accredited school, you think about meeting compulsory attendance requirements. What are the minimum days required in our state and the minimum number of hours? So I'm going to suggest a mindset for you that will help you to think about this. The mindset is when, a, when an accrediting agency looks at the online experience at a school. So there are schools that have on-campus and online programs. In, in AECS, we have some protocols for accrediting an online program. The fundamental question is, is a student in the online program receiving an equivalent experience to a student in the on-campus program? It's not going to be identical, but are they getting approximately uh, the same education, the same level of rigor, uh, the same value for their education dollar as a student in the on-campus program would be getting. Right now, as a stopgap, I think a lot of our schools have said, we've got to strip this down to just the essentials. But that won't be enough next year. Uh, next year, you have to expand your programs back out, even when they are online programs. And the fundamental question is, 
Uh, am I giving to this student in an online experience an equivalent uh, academic experience, an equivalent degree of rigor as he would be getting in the on-campus program? I think that states look at very similar ideas when they look at whether or not you're meeting the required number of days and hours. You'd have to look at, uh, that's going to be state by state, primarily. It's going to be your State Department of Education that's going to tell you if you're given some grace on the, the days and hours. Uh, but the fundamental question is, am I offering an equivalent experience? One other thought related to accredited schools, and that is if you move uh, to an online program as anything more than a stopgap measure, then your accrediting agency very likely has protocols for an online program that you will need to meet. Uh, AACS does, uh, very common with accrediting agencies. So if you're adding an online program or moving to a position where you will significantly use an online program, then you'll have to do a self-study and address the protocols for an online program. Well, and I think this brings us to a really good place uh, to end this first podcast uh, about these two papers. We've given you some really good things to think about, especially as it relates to a task force and developing crisis management plans. Um, if you haven't gotten these uh, letters, these papers from Kennesaw State and Dr. Beto, please go to the show notes and get those. But we're going to end the first podcast right here, and we will come back in our next episode and tackle a few more issues that I think you're going to find extremely helpful to you. So thanks for listening to this episode of AACS Today. Thanks to Dr. Walton and Ed Francis for joining us. And we'll see you back here next time to continue this discussion around the open letter to independent schools from Kennesaw State and Dr. Beadle's letter to uh, private Christian schools as we think about planning for the fall. Have a great day. God bless.